1: an autopsy is performed, someone is dissected under careful observation. That is the idea here, that Luke says he relied on eyewitnesses, he relied on the careful observation that people provided to him. He investigated this. He's then inspired by the Spirit to pen and record the things that God intends to be preserved. So it's a combination here of inspiration and investigation. He relies on eyewitnesses and those who he calls servants of the Word.
0: A good detective looks for facts and witnesses to get a fuller picture of what really happened. In this edition of Cornerstone Connection, Pastor Gary opens this study of the book of Luke by helping you understand how Luke was able to write about the life of Jesus, even though he hadn't been there himself. You'll learn that Luke, a Gentile, interviewed lots of people who knew Jesus, heard him teach, or saw him perform miracles. Luke's writings were guided by these eyewitness accounts and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: Luke wants to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. So for you note-takers, I'm going to give you several bullet points. Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus as the Son of Man, one who understands people's weaknesses and cares for their needs, one who came for all mankind, not just for the Jews. And the reason that this is particularly important from Luke's vantage point is because Luke is a Gentile, and he writes primarily for the Gentiles again Matthew wrote primarily for the Jews and Matthew quotes more Old Testament scripture than any of the other gospel writers because Matthew is bringing Old Testament Jewish history and scripture into perspective in relation to the life and ministry of Jesus that he fulfilled. Uh, Luke is taking a different angle. He's a Gentile. He's going to write from the standpoint of Jesus coming as the son of man who came to seek and to save that which was lost. He will write in chapter nine because Jesus came for all men kind, not just for the Jews. Luke is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. And if you were to exclude Paul's writings, and Paul takes up the majority of the New Testament, then Luke would actually be the one who writes most of the New Testament. So if you were to pull Paul out, which we're not going to do, but if you were to exclude what Paul wrote, then Luke is really the predominant writer of the New Testament because he writes not only the Gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts. The Bible also tells us that Luke was a physician. And Paul referred to him in Colossians 4.14 as our good friend Luke, the doctor. So he is Dr. Luke. And um, you also might note that as a physician, he's going to take a different perspective in some of the things that he records related to the life and ministry and miracles of Jesus. For example, taking the angle from physical and medical things in his gospel, he is the only one who records the circumcision of Jesus. He is the only one who also talks about the time when Jesus perspired droplets of blood, a medical phenomenon that we call today hematidrosis, under excruciating agony when someone can can actually perspire blood when just breaking capillaries in their brow. Luke records that scene when Jesus uh, perspired droplets of blood while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Luke is also the one who records the miracle of Jesus reattaching the servant's ear after Peter had drawn a sword and lopped the guy's ear off. Remember that scene during the time of Jesus' arrest? When Peter was impulsive and, you know, goes for the head of this guy and ends up only clipping his ear. And so Jesus reattaches the guy's ear. That's the last miracle that Jesus performs before he's crucified. And Luke is the only gospel writer who records that. In addition, as we look into the Gospel of Luke, you might note with me that he was also a traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, Paul even mentions that Luke was the only one keeping him company during one of Paul's Roman imprisonments. Paul will write in 2 Timothy 4.11. And you also will note with me that as Luke begins this Gospel, he addresses it the same way that he addresses the book of Acts that he also wrote to a guy by the name of Theophilus, whose name literally translates in, from the Greek, lover of God, from two words in the Greek, theo and phileo, uh, God and to love. Now, there are some who, who believe that Theophilus was not a real person, that Theophilus was kind of a code word for the church, the church that loved God, but Uh, it is more likely that Theophilus is an actual person and that he was a person of high standing and that Luke was probably his personal physician. And that's the relationship here. So Luke is going to address his gospel to Theophilus. He addresses the book of Acts to Theophilus, probably the guy that he worked for uh, as his personal physician. Now, Luke is not one of Jesus's disciples. He's not one of the twelve. He is not an eyewitness of these events either that he records here in this gospel, and yet he gives us one of the most thorough records of Jesus's life. How is it possible then? Two words, write it down, inspiration and investigation. Inspiration and investigation. The first thing is that he he relies on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and, and the Bible makes this clear about all those who record whose words are preserved here in the pages of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen says that all Scripture is God breathed. It is a Greek word, theonustos, meaning a combination of God breathing. King James Version says inspired. It's not as strong of an interpretation of the original Greek word as the NIV. And he says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in all righteousness. And that's what the Bible is about, being guided by the Holy Spirit. So Scripture is God-breathed. So Luke, like all the other writers that are preserved here in the Bible, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen what he did. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 also says that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. So the inspiration of Scripture, don't get this picture like somebody's in this trance and they're just kind of like, you know, people's own personality is often preserved through scripture but at the end of the day everything that they write is ordained by God so that nothing is left out and nothing is added except that which God intended that's the idea behind inspiration of the Holy Spirit so you know it's not like somebody's in this you know trance that kind of thing happens in demonic ways where people who were under the influence of demons just often you know, are riding in trances and this kind of a thing. That's not the idea behind inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired people, used individuals, their personalities, their perspectives, to record those things that God wanted to be preserved. Nothing was added that he didn't want in the Scriptures, and nothing was deleted that God didn't want in the Scriptures. So um, that's what we mean when we say inspiration. But in addition, by investigation, uh, Luke not to you know diminish the importance of the inspiration of the spirit but but Luke was somewhat like a great investigative reporter because he's going to tell us in the first few verses here in fact just look at it we'll we'll come back to it and and read it but in verse 1 it says many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So there we have those phrases, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And, and the, the, the Greek word for eyewitnesses there is autoptes Autoptase is actually where we get our English word autopsy. When an autopsy is performed, someone is dissected under careful observation. That is the idea here, that Luke says he relied on eyewitnesses. He relied on the careful observation that people provided to him. He investigated this. He's then inspired by the Spirit to pen and record the things that God intends to be preserved. So it's a combination here of inspiration and investigation. He relies on eyewitnesses and those who he calls servants of the word. Now, one of the eyewitnesses that it is most likely that Luke relies on is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because Luke gives us some information that none of the other gospel writers give us as it relates to the story of of the birth of Jesus Christ. For example, when you look into the Gospel of Luke, some of the things that Luke writes about that none of the other Gospels write about, for example, related to the birth of Jesus we're talking about, uh, is the information about how an angel, the angel Gabriel, appeared to Mary announcing the conception of Jesus. Luke also writes about Mary's song that has been dubbed the Magnificat, that we find here in chapter 1. He also writes about the Roman census and the journey to Bethlehem that Mary and Joseph took. He writes about how there was no room in the inn and the manger scene, and he writes about the shepherds. Matthew, Mark, and John do not talk about any of those events. It is believed that Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and part of his investigative work was interviewing Mary and receiving the historical account as Mary gave it to him, like no one else would know. You know, who was there when Mary received this personal message from the angel Gabriel? Nobody except Gabriel and Mary. So for Luke to know this, it's either going to come directly from God or it's going to come from God through Mary because she was the one who experienced this. So very interesting stuff here that Luke writes about that none of the other gospel writers give us. And so all of that... As an introduction now to chapter 1, as uh, we look together here at, uh, maybe we'll get through chapter 1, maybe not, but uh, you'll note with me also, maybe in the margin of your Bible, that the first two chapters of Luke cover 13 years. First two chapters of Luke cover 13 years. It begins with the story of the conception of John the Baptist, and chapter 2 will end talking about Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple court areas when he got left there by mom and dad. So from the conception of John the Baptist through Jesus being age 12, it covers us. And John the Baptist and Jesus were only six months apart. It covers about 13 years. And by the way, Luke is also the only of the gospel writers who record the scene about Jesus being left at the temple. And that if, if, in fact... Part of Luke's investigation was getting information from Mary. That must have been very painful for her to say. <laughs> you might want to write this part down. There was also a time when we left Jesus. We thought we had him in the van, and we didn't. That actually happened. I'll, I'll tell about. That. I'll tell that story a little bit later when we get to the, when we get to that actual scene. But anyway, here at chapter one. So here we are, verse one again. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. Among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first, and literally in the Greek that translates from above, referring probably to the inspiration of the Spirit, who from the first or from above were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Look, underline that verse. If nothing else, read the Gospel of Luke as a way that solidifies, that helps to make certain what you have been taught, that reinforces these things. He says here in verse 5, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Look look at how it describes these two. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. So we are introduced here to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, Uh, The subtitle in my Bible says, The Birth of John the Baptist Foretold, but it really should be subtitled, The Story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, because it's really about them at this point. And what the Bible tells us about them is that they are up there in years, they are are elderly, in fact it's going to say later in this chapter specifically... The angel Gabriel is going to say to Mary in his conversation with her that your relative Elizabeth is old. He's just going to say it plainly, okay? He's not going to try to be delicate and say, you know, she's kind of age-deprived. No, he's going to say she's old, all right? And that makes for the greater miracle here because uh, she's not been able to conceive. And by the way, under Old Testament Jewish law, a woman who could not conceive was grounds for divorce in the day was grounds for divorce of the day. But see, Zechariah is a man who is devoted to God, number one, and he's devoted to his wife, number two. And he's not going to divorce her. They're not able to have kids. He's going to stay with her. He's not going to abandon her. He loves her. Uh, Interesting things about their names. Zechariah in Hebrew, his name is pronounced Zechariah, and his name literally translates... Yahweh, or God, remembers. Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. Her name in Hebrew, Elizabeth, is really pronounced Elisheva. Elisheva translates oath of God or promise of God. And when you put their names together, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah and Elisheva, it translates in Hebrew, God remembers his promise. God remembers His promise or His oath. You have to remember at this point that we're reading here in Jewish history, at the point when John the Baptist is conceived here and going to be born, God has been silent for 400 years. There has not been a prophet since Malachi. John the Baptist is going to be the next prophet of God. He is going to speak to the people to prepare the way of the Messiah There has not been a prophet in Israel since Malachi 400 years earlier. The end of the of the Old Testament that ends with the book of Malachi, that was the last prophet. And between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are called the 400 silent years. Because God did not speak to the people of Israel through a prophet for 400 years. This is going to be the first time in 400 years when John the Baptist is born, grows up, and and becomes the voice of the prophet of God. That God has spoken to the people of Israel in four centuries. And God remembers his promise. What does that mean? Between their two names, Elizabeth and Zechariah, it translates Yahweh. God remembers his oath, remembers his promise. Well, what he remembers is, for example, Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. You say, well, how does that have anything to do with John the Baptist? Because in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew talked about the ministry of John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, Matthew quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, what I just read you, and says that that prophecy of Isaiah 40, verse 3, was fulfilled in John the Baptist because John the Baptist was the one who went around declaring, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him because Jesus Messiah is here and you need to get your hearts right with him. In addition, God remembered his oath or remembered his promise because at the end of the book of Malachi, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says this, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn, listen to this, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the lamb with a curse. There's going to be this, redemptive work that comes through the prophet John the Baptist that even precedes Messiah, not redemptive in the same way that Messiah's redemption is performed. But there's going to be this reconciling among people that fathers of hearts will turn to their children, children to their father. And Gabriel, the angel, when he speaks about the conception of John the Baptist, is going to quote that verse that I just read to you from Malachi chapter 4. You'll see it in just a minute when we read the words of Gabriel, the angel. So in other words, what's coming together is Malachi chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 40, and God is saying, I remembered my oath, I remembered my promise, and even though I've been silent for 400 years, now's the time I'm going to speak up because Messiah is at hand, and John the Baptist is going to announce his arrival. And so you see here this couple here, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are both Levites, Because they are both descendants of Aaron. The descendants of Aaron were the Levites. And the male descendants served as priests in the temple of God. And it tells us here that both Zechariah and Elizabeth, verse 6, both of them were upright. They observed all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. So they were very devout. They loved the Lord. They followed Him with all their heart. And we're going to see here that on one occasion when Zechariah, being a descendant of Levi, as a Levite, is in the temple performing his priestly duties, he's going to get this visitation from an angel. I mean, he woke up that morning having toast and having, you know, his coffee, and he had no idea that on this day he was going to have a personal visitation from an angel. Can you imagine that? Well, here we go. So verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then, verse 11 says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Okay, so pause for a moment. What it tells us is Zechariah's duty was to uh, uh, bring incense to the altar of incense. So just a little background here, because this is pretty significant. There were, in this particular day, about 20,000 male descendants of Levi who served in the temple area. 20,000. Now, if you were a Levite in this day... How was it determined that you would serve? They didn't need 20,000 people at once to serve in the temple area. So you were chosen in this day, the text tells us here, by lot. I mean, you know, they had kind of cast a lot and figure out, you know, Vegas style, who was supposed to work, how and when. And, And they'd make this whole chart of responsibility. Well, the Bible says here that the lot for the altar of incense fell on Zechariah. So in this day, 20,000 priests, here's what they would do. They would divide the duties such that you would serve for one week term twice a year. One week term twice a year. That way they'd be able to get all 20,000 in through the various duties. Now when it comes to this one article of the temple, it was called the altar of incense. The altar of incense was a small standing golden Altar, but it was almost like uh, uh, a rectangular box. It was 18 inches square and stood about 36 inches high. So, about three feet high and only about a foot and a half square. And it took three priests in their duties to attend to the altar of incense. It was made out of gold. And here's how the responsibility went there was one priest whose responsibility solely was to clean the ashes off of the altar. And you would do this morning and evening so twice a day so one priest would come in remove the ashes from the previous day another priest would come in bringing coals hot coals from the burnt offering from the altar of burnt offering and bring the coals and place them on top of this little altar and then the third priest would come along with incense All beers and up and up. You jump
0: in and
1: you'll find the corn.
0: The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ, from his birth to his ministry, his death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in him. Yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But his death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus? Or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at CornerstoneChapel.net That's prayer at CornerstoneChapel.net Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website CornerstoneConnection.cc You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary you be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.
1: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know